Well, we will be starting in Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> if something does happen, uh, of course, I will start a brand new video uh, right after. If something cuts off the connection, which, as we know, has happened before. What do you do? So let's turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We have gotten to, we've really gotten to the end of the study that we've been doing. I mean, here we have, we went over a number of different things uh, throughout the time that we've been doing this study on eschatology. We've been over, of course, um, premillennialism, because that seems to be the prevailing view today, the more popular one. Specifically, dispensational premillennialism. And we went over a number of different things when it comes to that particular view and how that view just does not line up with Scripture. And there's a lot of things that have to be forced into the passage in order for it to to support some type of a premillennial view um and we just found that view to be wanting um what else can you say i mean when you look at matthew 24 when you look at all this whole overview that we've been doing in the book of revelation you look at passages in daniel that uh where the premillennials get their idea of uh the seven-year tribulation stuff it just it, it just doesn't add up it does not say the things that they want it to say. And uh, I think that we've, we've seen that. So, we studied on dispensational premillennialism, uh, specifically on the tribulation, on the thousand-year millennium. We've studied on preterism and partial preterism. Uh, we've looked at a number of different things uh, concerning eschatology. And tonight, we are finishing up our study as we are coming to the culmination of the book of revelation which is chapters 20 to 22 this is the seventh cycle of visions within the book of revelation now again if you're a premillennialist and again we define a dispensational premillennialist as one who believes in a rapture a seven-year tribulation the second coming of christ a thousand-year millennium satan being bound during this time completely and then Satan being loosed at the end of it to gather a great army against the Lord. You have some difficulties there because we read of final judgment being poured out within the book of Revelation in numerous places. Chapter 6, chapter 11, chapter 14, chapter 16, chapter 19. And here we're going to read of it again in chapter 20. So how many times does Christ pour out his final judgment? One. Now, we read of the saints in heaven after the judgment is being poured out. How many times do we read that? Six times so far. Getting ready to see the seventh time. How many times is Christ coming back? Well, again, how many times are we reading of final judgment? He's, he's re returning in these, these passages. Uh, so either he's coming back six or seven times, or he's coming back one time. And when he does come back, he is vanquishing all of his enemies and the enemies of his people. So we've looked at the book of Revelation as it is uh, cyclical, not linear. It doesn't start out with chapter 4, then it moves to the contents of chapter 5, which brings in um, you know, the throne room, of course, in Christ being there. Then he starts to break the seals, and we read of the seven seals in chapter 6, and then the seven seals bring in the chapter, or the seven seals bring in the seven trumpets and then the seven trumpets bring in the seven bowls and all of that if we look at it in a linear fashion we have some serious problems and we've talked about that but if we see each vision within the book of revelation and we're we're viewing it cyclical that there are seven cycles of visions within the book of revelation that are all saying the same thing they're they're not different judgments it's the same judgment that is being described to us over and over and over again until we come to the climax of the book, which is here in chapter 20. So when you're looking at uh, the 
visions themselves, they are introducing Christ in some aspect of his first coming, the period of struggle of the people of God in between, and then him coming in judgment and, and pouring out his judgment upon his enemies while we find the saints then right after in heaven. And this is this particular uh, set of verses here are no different. We are introduced to Christ in his first coming. We are introduced to the time in between his first and second coming. Or we're told again of his uh, the time in between the first and second coming and him coming in judgment, final judgment, one time. And this time we get to see not just the other enemies of the people of God, not just those that bear the mark of the beast or the beast from the sea or the beast of the earth or Babylon. Now we get to see the great enemy of the people of God having his judgment uh, delivered to him. So this is a very exciting uh, vision here. But it's also the one that is probably the more controversial when it comes to contents of chapter 20. Is chapter 20 describing a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth while Satan is bound completely? Or is the thousand years in carrying on with the rest of the book and the use of numbers, a symbolic number that is describing the undisclosed amount of time in between Christ's first coming and second coming? I find it so interesting that when you come to the book of Revelation and being written in, in apocalyptic literature, symbolism, the rule, literalism, the exception, that's just the characteristics of the book. We have the use of numbers. The use of numbers are all through the book of Revelation and, and colors and, and all kinds of images of beasts and of dragons and all of that, which is characteristic of apocalyptic literature. That we're reading of numbers all through there. Satan having seven heads and ten horns and the seven eyes of Christ, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth and, and seven being used uh, so many times and ten being used so many times and twelve and, and derivatives of those particular numbers. And all of a sudden we get to chapter 20 and we say, well, that thousand must be literal. When every other use of numbers within the book of Revelation are being used in the symbolic way, according to the characteristic of the genre, to disclose something, whether it's perfection and, or completeness or whatever the case may be. I just I find that very odd that we come to the book of Revelation and say, well, a thousand must be literal in a book full of symbolism. But we've already talked about that, so there's no sense in rehashing that. Well, I guess in one sense there is, because we are going to go over some of those things. Let me read for you uh, chapter 20, and then we'll go back and talk about it a little bit, and, and then we'll get uh, through chapter 21 and 22. To follow along in your Bible, I'm reading out of a New American Standard Bible, so depending yours might be a little different. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Remember that, short time. Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. 
and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever then i saw a great white throne and him and him who sat on it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them and i saw the dead the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were open and another book was open which is the book of life and the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds and the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds then death and hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. <clears throat> uh, sorry. Uh, Damon got me off there. Yeah, that was a good one. Maybe we need to make some charts. <laughs> so here we come to Revelation 20. Now, of course, the, the big views of eschatology, premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism all derive their name from how we view the millennium, the thousand years, in Revelation chapter 20. Now, as we talked about before, premillennialism just doesn't add up with the rest of Scripture. Um, but here in chapter 20, we've already talked about those things, so let's move on. Chapter 20, we see this amazing vision here this great event that occurs when john says that he saw an angel coming down from heaven holding a chain and the key of the abyss and he comes down and he lays hold of the dragon satan the serpent of old the devil bounds him for and binds him for a thousand years he throws him into the abyss he shuts it he seals it so that this is specific here, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, here's the question. Now, for the premillennial, well, let me say this first. The premillennial view says when Christ comes in his second coming at the end of the tribulation, and then he says that he'll set up his kingdom here on earth for a thousand years, at which time... Satan is going to be bound in the complete sense of being bound. And, of course, you're going to have this um, utopia or whatever uh, on the earth where Satan is bound and whatever. Here's some things to think about, though. As we talked about in chapter 19, we see just how comprehensive God's judgment is in 19. So the question is, who gets to enter into this supposed millennium anyway? Let me back you up to chapter 19. When Christ descends from heaven and he devours his enemies, what happens? Verse 17, chapter 19. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for a great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men, and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse, and against his army. This will come back around here in just a moment. But listen to this. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came out from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Who's alive after that? Doesn't seem like anybody is. This is like a very complete and comprehensive final judgment here in chapter 19, where 
nobody's alive after this. After the coming of Christ and him coming in judgment, there's no one left. So who gets to enter into some supposed millennium? Hmm. Doesn't seem like anybody does. But for some premillennialists, they'll say, well, there's a certain group that's to enter in or whatever. But even, let's say, if you just maintain that Israel, certain ones of Israel get to enter into the millennium. Then you have another problem, because at the end of the millennium, Satan is going to be released, and he's going to go to the four corners of the earth and gather a great army of the nations. So how do the nations get there again? Hmm. Unless what we're reading in chapter 19 of the final judgment that is being poured out here is also described again here in chapter 20, where we find the great enemy of the people of God being judged when these are judged and when the others are judged. It's, it's overlapping each other. And not only that, but you have the language that is used in Revelation chapter 19, which comes from Ezekiel chapter 37, 38. Uh, where we read of Gog and Magog, but that language is used in chapter 19 here, and it's also used in chapter 20 here of this great battle at the end of, at the end of uh, the ages, at the end of the age rather, which is either two different battles or two different comings of judgment, or it's the same one, described for us again, which seems to make more sense. But anyway. So that's just something to think about of some supposed millennium that would come after a seven-year tribulation. And when you go to Daniel again, the 70th week of Daniel is fulfilled in Christ. There is no seven-year tribulation. The 70th week is attached to the other 69 weeks. And the 70th week, one who makes a firm covenant or who makes a covenant. And in the midst of this covenant time, Three and a half years in, he puts a stop to the sacrifice and a, and a stop to the grain offering. That was Christ. Three and a half years into his ministry. The night before he dies, passes around the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant which is shed for many. The next day he dies and Christ puts an end to the sacrificial system. The 70th week is fulfilled in Christ. So there is no seven-year tribulation that is yet to come when Daniel never even mentioned that to begin with. Daniel does mention one. After that, who comes and who makes things desolate, who commits the abomination of desolation, which he earlier spoke of in that same chapter, the prince of the people, who uh, that particular passage was fulfilled in AD 70 when Titus, the prince, son of the emperor, is the one who sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and all of that. So, let's move on. Chapter 20. We see this vision. An angel comes down, binds Satan, and his binding is very specific. We already have read, of course, of the abyss and all of that, that the abyss uh, earlier, it was opened, and out came this, this horde of demons who had a, a king over them, a Baden and a Polyon, and they assembled for this great army. That happened already. We, we done read of that uh, earlier in the book of Revelation. So keep that in mind, too. But here's the question. If this is not talking about a future millennium where Satan is bound, and for many of us we maintain that this has already happened, then when did it happen? So the language here is that this angel comes down from heaven, he binds Satan with a great chain. And by the way, if you don't think this is symbolism, if the angelic host are spiritual beings, how are they going to be held with a chain? Or any of that. Uh, lock, whatever. Anyway, something else to think about. But he throws him into the abyss. He shuts it. He seals it. So that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. Now, we have read this before elsewhere within scripture. This binding of Satan we would maintain is because this is starting a new vision that this is when uh, the, this occurred, rather, at Christ's first coming, during his ministry time. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. <clears throat> Matthew 
Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is casting out demons. And then the religious leaders begin to try to discredit him in front of the people. So they begin to say, well, he's casting out demons by the power of, of Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So listen to what Jesus says. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, this is verse 25 of chapter 12, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Right here. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his goods or plunder his house? You have Jesus talking about Satan being bound and evidence of Satan being bound is the fact that he is casting out demons uh, during his first coming. He's talking about the strong man being Satan and Christ binding him even in those moments. This same word for binding is the same word that's used in Revelation chapter 20 here. But that's not all, because we read in Revelation 20 that the angel is throwing him into the abyss and all of that. In Luke chapter 10, <clears throat> in Luke chapter 10, we have the 70 that are coming back with great results, going on their missionary trips or the missionary trip. So they come back, they're excited, and they start saying to Jesus that um, even, even the demons are sub, subject to us in your name. And what does Jesus say? The first thing he says in chapter 10 of Luke, verse 18, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. He says, in conjunction with the missionary work of the disciples, Jesus uses that language, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And this is what he says also in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Let me read to you what all is going on here. In verse, we'll start in verse 20 of John chapter 12, so we put everything in context. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Greeks, right? Gentiles. These, these then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Uh, Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, listen to what, else, what he says. Uh, jump down to uh, verse 30. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. In light of Gentiles coming to see Jesus, and then Jesus himself saying that he is, he is going to draw all men to himself of all ethnicities, he says then that the time is, the judgment is upon this world, and the ruler of this world will be cast out. So Jesus says, I saw him falling like lightning. He is cast out. And then you have this vision in Revelation 20 of an angel binding Satan, same as what Jesus said in Matthew 12, and then 
hurling him into the abyss, the uh, hurling or casting or whatever you want to say there. And it's the same thing that Jesus said of, of Satan during his first coming. That in his first coming, he has bound him. He has cast him down. And now the, the gospel is going forth in all the nations. Now, we may look at back in Revelation 20 and we may say, well, that doesn't sound like a very comprehensive binding of Satan. I mean, if we say that Satan's bound now, I mean, look at all the evil that's still in the world. Well, yeah. This binding is very specific. It is not a total binding in the sense of there is no evil or he can't work or any of those things. It is a binding in the sense, as Revelation puts it, that he cannot deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are completed. Now, if you look at Israel or look at all the nations in the time of, of our Lord, leading up to the time of our Lord, if you want to go that far, absolutely. All the nations pretty much belonged under the influence of Satan. They were all pagan. The only ones that worshipped God were Israel. God had entered into covenant with them and all of that. He didn't enter into covenant with any of the nations. And so the nations were pretty much influenced by Satan. And you see that in the course in all their paganism. Until, until the Great Commission by Christ. After he conquered death, after he made an open show of all uh the, of Satan and, and all the evil forces and demonic forces, as Colossians chapter 2 says, after he rendered Satan powerless in his resurrection, as the writer of Hebrews says, then he gives the command to go forth into all the nations and make disciples of all the nations. And he says, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go make disciples. So you see that now the gospel is going into the nations, whereas before it did not. They were they belonged to Satan, his influence. Now it's going out into all the nations. And now people of all ethnicities are being converted to the gospel, which was foreshadowed what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 12, when the Greeks come to see him. And he says, I'm going to draw them into myself. And the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. So you have Jesus affirming in his first coming that he has bound Satan and he has bound him to the extent that Satan cannot hinder the progress of the gospel going out into all the nations. And we can look and say, well, well, it seems like there, there's so much evil influence in the world with other religions and all this sort of thing. And, and what persecution the people of God endure all over the globe. Yes, but the gospel is still going forth. And those that, uh, that the Father has chosen to give unto Christ will come to faith and not one will be left left out and we'll see that in in just a few minutes as well if you have satan being bound in christ's first coming for now uh we're told you know we're not ignorant of the schemes of the devil uh don't give the devil an opportunity the devil is like a roaring lion lion seeking whom he may devour uh but you have this binding of, of satan being in these moments even now from the time christ ascended into heaven until now now we are then given a description of what is happening with the saints that are in heaven after the devil is bound the language here in chapter 20 chapter 20 verse 4 then i saw thrones and they that sat on them judgment was given to them and i saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of jesus and because of the word of god and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now the premillennialists will say, well, Christ has set up his kingdom on earth. Revelation 20 doesn't say anything like that. And in fact, the language that we're reading here, beginning in verse 4, of, and I saw thrones and they that sat on them is used over 40 times elsewhere in the book of Revelation, all referring to a heavenly scene. Uh, it's not an earthly scene. It's in heaven. The throne of God is in heaven. It's never. It's not described in Revelation 20 as being on earth. It is uh, in chapter 22, but not in chapter 20. It is in heaven. That's where the throne of God is. Um, 
when we think of where the throne is, and we were already told a number of times anyway, but um, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. John is writing, introducing this book in that time. We can debate whether or not Revelation was written before or after A.D. 70 or whatever. But it's in the first century that John is writing this, acknowledging that at this time, that this is going on in heaven, and the throne of God is in heaven. In chapter 3, verse 21, He who overcomes, I will grant, to him, grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. This is a promise in that present day, of sitting on the throne, and the throne is already described in chapter 1 as being in heaven. Chapter 4, verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in uh, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. The throne is in heaven. In chapter 12, In chapter 12, we read of the male child being Christ, of course. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Again, acknowledging that the throne of God is in heaven. It is not on the earth. Everywhere else in the book of Revelation describing the throne of God, it's in heaven. It's not on the earth. Now, the amazing thing that we are able then to see is that if the throne of God is in heaven, and this language of thrones is used elsewhere in the book of Revelation, all referring to heaven, then we are finding out something about what is going on in heaven during this present time in between the first and second coming of Christ with those who have died and went on to be with the Lord. Notice something else just to give us the indication that this, that the resurrection has not happened yet, or the rapture, whatever you want to call it, we'll call it the resurrection has not happened yet, even here in chapter 20, is because when John sees this, he doesn't see resurrected bodies or resurrection bodies. He sees souls. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. If this had been after the resurrection, then obviously they would have had their physical resurrected body. But they're not described that way. They're described as souls, not bodies. So in theology, we study, of course, of the intermediate state of man. What happens to us right now when we die and the Lord hasn't come back yet? Well, our body goes to the dust of the earth and our spirit goes home to be of the Lord. Until the resurrection, when we are once again reunited into a physical glorified body, which is the culmination of our salvation. So the intermediate state is what's being described here. John sees the souls of them. And what do they do? They're reigning with Christ right now. Those that have gone on to be with the Lord, the promise that is given to them that they will be priests and kings to our God, as, as John says early in Revelation, we're seeing that in Revelation 20 in the intermediate state, that they are ruling and reigning with Christ during this undisclosed amount of time in between the first and second coming of Christ. Now, he talks about the first resurrection. Now, if you're a premillennialist, you will say, well, the first resurrection happens at the second coming of Christ, which they would view as being at the end of the tribulation. And then the resurrection of the wicked doesn't happen until later. Um, so you have you know, two different resurrections at two different times and all that. <clears throat> Just because it says the first resurrection. But if we think of this, did Jesus talk about two different resurrections in the sense of being a spiritual resurrection and then the physical resurrection? Because it's acknowledging these that are in the intermediate state have participated in a resurrection, obviously. But we're maintaining it hasn't been the physical resurrection. So how can we do that? Well, again... The book of Revelation, we have to go back 
and read the more clear passages when it comes to these things. So let's look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5, this is, once again, Jesus speaking. He talks of two resurrections. Listen to this, begin in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. The next one. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. He talks about two different resurrections right there in John 5. A spiritual resurrection, because you, you heard the language there. An hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Then he talks about another. An hour is coming. He doesn't say and now is. He just says an hour is coming in which those who are in the tombs will hear. So he's talking about spiritually dead and then physically dead being two different resurrections. When you become a believer in Christ, you have participated in the first resurrection. And that is exactly how it's described in the scripture. Ephesians chapter 1. Oh, chapter 2, I'm sorry. Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the language of spiritual resurrection. Now you think of this, that you were dead in your trespasses and sin, you were by nature children of wrath, and then something happened right you were made alive with christ or made alive in christ and this was done by the regenerating work of the holy spirit we have that described to us in ezekiel chapter 36 for example when god says i will remove your heart of stone and i will give you a heart of flesh i will put my spirit within you and i will cause you to walk in my statutes and i will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean in all of that language that is describing the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus alludes to in John chapter 3, verses 3 to 8. So you have this language of spiritual resurrection of those that in this life, during this time, who come to faith in Christ, it is a spiritual resurrection. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, now we've been made alive together with Christ. And that's how the Apostle Paul describes it again in Romans chapter 6. Verse 3, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. So he's likening the idea of coming to Christ as a resurrection. And that's exactly what we're reading in Revelation 20. Of those who are in the intermediate state, their body has gone to the dust, their spirit's gone home to be with the Lord. They've participated in the first resurrection. We know that at this present moment, when we have come to faith in Christ, that the second death has no power over us, even right now. Why? Because we are 
converted by the Spirit of God, regenerated by the Spirit of God, sealed with the Spirit of God, and, and we will forever be united to Christ because of the Spirit of God's work in our hearts. So, we're talking in the intermediate state. We're here, obviously. We participated in the first resurrection. Those that are in heaven right now, ruling and reigning with Christ, have participated in the resurrection. So this means then that for those of our loved ones who have died and gone home to be with the Lord, what are they doing? They are ruling and reigning with Christ at this present moment in his presence, rejoicing before the Lamb, the one who gave his life for them, and reigning with him right now. <clears throat> now, he talks about the rest of the dead not coming to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. What is it that John describes the people of God as being? Revelation 1. Priests and kings. And they rule and reign with Christ in heaven. Verse 7. So we have the intermediate state of man being described to us of the saints that are in heaven. What are they doing? In verse 7, we have this description of Satan when he is loosed upon the earth. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war, and the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Now, we've read already about a great army that amasses in order to come against the Lord. We've read of it in chapter 19. We've read of it in chapter 14. You know, we're reading of this great army being brought about in order to try to combat the Lord already. This is obviously the same battle, the same supposed uh, war, Battle of Armageddon. Um, you know, you have the Battle of Armageddon actually described uh, in a few different chapters, but it's specifically called uh, that in chapter 16 there. But I was always told that uh, when the Battle of Armageddon happens, it's going to be so devastating that the blood is going to be up to the horse's bridle. Well, that's not described in chapter 16. That's described in chapter 14. So you have 14 and 16 and 19 in chapter 20 that are all describing the same event when Christ returns. Now, we have this, this description of when Satan is finally loosed. Satan is able to freely go once more to deceive the nation. What does the scripture elsewhere call that? It could be de described as the great apostasy, the great falling away. Satan's influence is then going to be uh, very, uh, even more widespread uh, than it is now. And when he does so, he's going to, the description is going to gather a great army, deceiving more people to persecute believers, and he's going to gather them together for the war. Gog and Magog. Now, <clears throat> Gog and Magog is bringing us back to Ezekiel. Excuse me. Here's what William Hendrickson says. When the thousand years are finished, Satan is released from his prison. Then it becomes very clear that the final and most terrible persecution by means of which the anti-Christian forces are going to oppress the church is instigated in a most direct manner by Satan himself. The devil musters Gog and Magog for a final attack upon the camp of the saints, the beloved city. The expression Gog and Magog is borrowed from the book of Ezekiel. For the term undoubtedly indicates the power of the Seleucids, especially as it was revealed in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, the bitter enemy of the Jews. The center of his kingdom was located in northern Syria. Seleucus established his residence there in the city of Antioch on the Orontes. To the east, his territory extended beyond the Tigris to the north domain over which the Seleucids ruled included Meshech and Tubal districts in Asia Minor. Accordingly, Gog was the prince of Magog, that is, Syria. Therefore, the oppression of God's people by Gog and Magog refers 
in Ezekiel through the terrible persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes, ruler of Syria. And the book of Revelation uses this period of affliction and woe as a symbol of the final attack of Satan and his hordes upon the church. So we're pulling from Old Testament passages, and what he's referring to, by the way, we're, we're told of, of Gog and Magog and Ezekiel. And then we are told of another king that is in Daniel, who comes down from the north and who commits the abomination of desolation. That was King Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid ruler, who went to the temple, who sacrificed the pig on the altar to Zeus and desecrated it. And of course, you had the Maccabean revolt, pushed him back out, and then they cleansed the temple. And because of that whole ordeal, and when they cleansed the temple, supposedly they only had enough oil to light the lamp for uh, so much time, and it ended up um, burning for eight days, and now they celebrate Hanukkah in view of that. <clears throat> They're taking from that event, John is, and he's now applying that symbol to describe something about the anti-Christian forces at the end that will try this great persecution against the believers. <clears throat> it's interesting, though, that he uses Gog and Magog. So when the Seleucid king, Antiochus, began his uh, persecution against the people of God in Israel, it was for a short time. It didn't last very long. Um, and that's what Hendrickson points out, that it was only for a short time, which is also being brought into what John has previously told us about the time of when Satan is going to be released. He says in verse 3, he must be re released for a short time. And now he uses Gog and Magog, the events that surround the Maccabean revolt and the Seleucid king. Uh, that happened uh, for a short period of time, and now that's being used to describe this short period of time of persecution, severe persecution, which is instigated by Satan himself. But when this happens, it says they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever now we see the final demise of satan himself just as it was with the beast and the false prophet just as it was with babylon just as it was with the mark of the beast or those that had the mark of the beast <clears throat> we see their final judgment now remember, what is the entire book of the book of Revelation about? It's about Christ and all of his glory, the conquering king. That's that's what everything's about. It's showing that he is the great conqueror. He is the victorious one. And now at the culmination of the book, we get to finally have described for us the demise of Satan, the judgment of Satan, for he is thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, and his torment uh, will be great for all eternity. Of course, you have the dead being described thereafter at, at the great white throne judgment, that they are being uh, judged accordingly and then cast into the lake of fire to receive their just punishment. Um, one quick thing there, a lot of, of premillennialists would say, well, uh, this is just a judgment for the unbeliever. Um that this isn't a judgment for believers. I disagree. Uh, because when we are uh, told of a judgment being given, you can look at Daniel 12 or even in uh, Romans chapter 2. Uh, Jesus described it when he talked about the physical resurrection just a moment ago in, in John 5, that when the end happens and Christ returns, that the, the believers are caught up to be with him. This is described in Revelation 14, by the way, as well. That the believers are caught up to be with him. They're changed in the moment of an eye. All the things we read of elsewhere in scripture. They're glorified in him. And then you have the unbelieving that are described as, as well at the same time. They were cast into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Uh, some were judged uh, that did uh, righteousness and all that as Jesus says. But then those that did evil to judgment. Uh, that's described as well as, as uh, Daniel 12 and, and Romans chapter 2. 
that the judgment occurs at the same time. Now, they may say, well, believers are not judged. Well, you're right, they're not. And we have a misunderstanding about the judgment in another way because we entertain this idea that when we stand before the Lord, that he's going to just start playing the movie reel and showing us all the terrible things that we have ever done in our life. And, and this is where God is going to wipe, wipe away all of our tears and all of that. Understand something, beloved. If you are in Christ, the judgment is already done. There is no judgment for the believer. And the fact of some some being uh, or, uh, on the day of judgment or on the day that we stand before the Lord at the last day, when Jesus says that he will raise us up on the last day, uh, should give us an indication, too, that it's the last day, as he says in John 6. But anyway, that there is no movie reel that's going to play. There is no bringing back against us any of the terrible sins that we've ever committed because those were paid for by Christ, and Christ satisfied the justice of his Father so that there would be no judgment against us. And if we understand the forgiveness of God as we rightly should, what does it mean then that we have been forgiven? Is that these sins will no longer ever, they will never be brought up against us ever again. That's the whole uh, beauty of being forgiven in Christ. Christ paid the penalty. Christ satisfied the justice of God. There is no, we're going to make you stand there and reminisce about all the terrible, wicked things that you've done in your life before I let you in my heaven. Uh, that's nonsense. In fact, let me just say it. That's stupid. That's an ignorant thing to even say whatsoever. So after the judgment, and we'll have to do this fairly quickly, I guess. But after the judgment, we are shown then the new heavens and the new earth. This beautiful vision, beautiful description in chapter 21. Now, I will say this. Premillennialists think that during the time of... Uh, that during the time of the millennium that you will be able to go from here to the new Jerusalem that descends out of heaven. I've heard this. Maybe, hopefully not all dispensational premillennials uh, believe that. Um, but that, that that's uh, no. Mm -mm. Um, we're talking about a symbolic book again, right? We haven't all of a sudden just went into a literal book. We were still in the symbolic one. So listen to how the new Jerusalem is described. After he talks about God wiping away every tear and all of that. And uh, the one who sits on the throne says, I'm making all things new. Right for these words are faithful and true. He, he says this. Verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, what is the angel getting ready to show, John? The bride, the wife of the Lamb. Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, a stone of crystal, clear jasper. Now, it just referred to as this holy city as in the feminine, right? So he's going to show John the bride, the wife of the lamb, and then he takes him up on a high mountain, and then John looks and he sees the new Jerusalem, Coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God on her. Talking about her brilliance. It was like a very costly stone. It had great and high walls with twelve gates. And at the gates, twelve angels. And the names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a golden gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Now, you can go back and you can read this description here, but it makes a perfect cube. The dimensions of the city make a perfect cube. 
Now, why is it that new, the new Jerusalem, if it was a literal city, would make a complete cube? Twelve foundations and twelve gates. And, and talking about the twelve tribes of Israel and twelve apostles and, and all of this sort of language. Because it's describing to us the complete church. The church in all her glory is complete. Not one is missing. Uh, this is the bride, the wife of the lamb. The bride is the church. That's elsewhere described for us. The bride of Christ is not simply a city. Now, you do remember this, though, that the description that Jesus gave of the people of God, he's like, you're, he says in Matthew 5, you're like salt in light, and you're like a city set on a hill whose light cannot be put out. That's what Jesus described of the people of God. And now in this vision of John, you're seeing the wife, the bride of the Lamb, as a brilliant, as a splendorous city that comes down out of heaven. Why does it come down out of heaven? Well, if you think of what happens at the second coming of Christ, at the rapture, the dead in Christ rise first, and then we who are alive and remain are caught up to meet them in, in the air, and we are glorified in him. The culmination of our salvation, the complete church finally being one, we're like a holy city whose light can never be put out. It is a complete city where not one is missing. All that the Father has chosen to give to his Son all came because the Spirit of God brought them and made them prepared and prepared them rather for this glorious day. The wife of the Lamb, the bride of Christ, is the church, the complete people of God, not a literal city. In chapter 22, real quickly, we're talking about the new heavens and the new earth, which Peter says happens at the second coming of Christ, which Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the earth is groaning, waiting for its redemption as we wait for the redemption of our bodies, indicating that when the resurrection occurs for us, that the earth will be redeemed. It all happens at one time. There is no second coming, thousand years, another great war, and then the new heavens and the new earth. Now, he says this about the new heavens and the new earth. Talking, reminiscing back to the Garden of Eden, of the Tree of Life, and, and all of those type of things, those amazing symbols that you think of in the book of Colossians, the epistle to the Colossians, that he's reconciling all things back to himself through the blood of his cross. That the way that things began in the beginning, he is making them uh, as such at the end even better, though. But it, here's, here's what I wanted to get to. Verse 3 of chapter 22, there will no longer be any curse in the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Finally, the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb will be in the midst of their people on earth in the new heavens and the new earth. Not before, but only at this point is the throne of Christ ever described on earth, and it's the new heavens and the new earth. Not some millennial kingdom thing. The new heavens and the new earth. And then, of course, we have eternity to worship and to learn even more of the God that saved us. So that ends the seventh cycle of visions, introducing Christ in his first coming, the period of struggle of the people of God in between, Christ coming in judgment at the end, enemies of God being vanquished, and the people of God rejoicing before their God. Uh, so I thank you all for your attention. And go back as well and read Revelation 20 and see the similarities between Revelation 20 and Revelation chapter 11. We didn't do that. We didn't have time. But uh, go back and, and look at some of those things. But I hope the study has been beneficial for you. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. It's been a number of, wow, probably three months or so that we've just been studying this particular thing. Um, it has been um, very great, uh, very enriching. 
uh, for me, and I hope it has been for you too. If there are any questions that you do have, that maybe of certain things that we didn't cover, or what have you, because we just just basically did an overview, uh, then you're welcome to uh, private message me, and we can uh, look at those things together. But thank you all for your attention, and I pray that you all have a wonderful rest of the evening. Join us back on Sunday as we continue our study in angelology, uh, the study of angels. Uh, we will jump back into that this coming Lord's Day, beginning at 11. And uh, I can't think of any other announcements at the moment. But thank you all, and hope you all have a wonderful evening.